Hello and welcome to this discussion from Cardiff University. My name is Karen Valjorgensen and I'm a professor in the Cardiff School of Journalism, Media and Cultural Studies. And joining me today is Professor René Lindstedt, who is the head of the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. And um, he's with me today to talk about the first year of the Trump presidency. So we're going to talk about the rise of Trump, his first year of governing the world's major superpower, and his ongoing battles with the media. Um, now, René, I wanted to start out by asking you about the big news story um, that is really shaping the agenda at the moment, and that has to do with the government shutdown in Washington, D.C. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this reflects on Trump's style in terms of his governance um, and, and his uh, presidency, really. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting. So this is, uh, this is essentially the first weekday um, where the government is now shut down. Um, the uh, uh, Congress couldn't come to an agreement uh, on Friday, and so uh, as of uh, Saturday, the government was shut down. Um, uh, they're trying to uh, uh, come to, to a solution at the moment, but it, it turns out that like, uh, Trump's, Trump's role has been quite interesting in this because um, he uh, doesn't really seem to entirely know what he wants out of this. I mean, he's been talking with both uh, Democrats and with Republicans in Congress and has been saying apparently different things to them and agreeing to deals that he then uh, would eventually back out of uh, again. And so my understanding is that at this point, uh, basically, uh, congressional leaders from both parties have said uh, for Trump to just stay out of it and let them uh, leave, leave them to it to, to resolve this. So there is uh, um, the the House has passed a uh, uh, a bill um, to sort of continue funding the the, the government. Uh, the Senate is currently um, trying to work on a bipartisan uh, uh, proposal. Um, there is uh, some people think that that there might actually be a vote today, and the government might be reopened uh, as soon as as today. But we'll we'll, we'll see. So what does this tell us about Trump's style? Well, I mean, I think um, he uh, basically, uh, I mean, it's quite interesting because at the moment there's obviously both parties are playing sort of this, uh, this blame game, who's responsible for having shut down the government. Um, and um, uh, I think a lot of people, at least on the left, are, are saying that if, if Trump was actually willing to sort of, you know, agree to... Uh, some of the proposals that have come out of Congress that actually have bipartisan support, um, this could have been easily prevented. But he is very keen to have a very uh, tough uh, um, a policy on immigration and border security, um, and uh, he doesn't feel like the proposals that are being put forward by, uh, by Congress, by the bipartisan proposals, are... Uh, uh, are tough enough, and so, um, and he doesn't feel like he's getting enough uh, money for his wall that he wants to build uh, across the Mexican border. So, that's uh, so. So he's uh, he bears a lot of responsibility for it. Of course, uh, he doesn't he doesn't seem to really own up to that. He seems to be blaming the Democrats primarily. Well, um, I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, uh, you know it's it's really nice that we have the opportunity to uh, to talk uh, somebody who's who's looking at this from a communication perspective and who is uh, who's worked as a journalist. This must be quite an interesting uh, time, uh, quite an interesting administration for you as well to uh, to look at from the from the outside. Um, is uh, 
is, is there anything that like you, um, I mean, obviously this, this is, is quite a unique presidency, but is there anything that sort of stands out uh, to you that, that is just completely different from how things were in previous administrations? Well, um, several things really, and I think, I think it's a really fascinating question for all of us studying politics. Um, and I think that one of the most striking things is that Trump has really uh, broken with this idea that there's uh, something very dignified about the presidency and that it's all about diplomacy and negotiation um, and uh, really getting people on, on board, as, as you mentioned um, when you were talking about the government shutdown. Um, and I think what is particularly striking here is his rhetorical style when he's communicating. So uh, by contrast to previous presidents who use this very measured style and often use very positive language when they give their speeches, when they communicate with journalists, when they communicate with members of the public and so on, what we see with Trump um, is this very uh, unhinged and kind of chaotic communicative style. And that's something that's given its expression both in his use of Twitter and in the way he performs whenever he speaks in public. And so I, I've described this as uh, the rise of a kind of angry populism where he tends to use much more negative emotions than uh, previous presidents have and, and that politicians do more generously, trying to kind of mobilize this very deeply felt anger in his electoral supporters. So I think that's uh, one very striking thing. Um, a second very striking thing about Donald Trump and his rhetoric is the way in which it represents a clear attack on democratic institutions. Um, and um, that includes uh, the media, and it includes the judicial system, and it also includes to some extent any of his political opponents in Congress. So we're seeing him attacking key democratic institutions through his rhetorical style in a way that generally shows fairly blatant disregard for the consequences. And so in a sense, I see him um, as a kind of uh, crazy chaos machine. So uh, I'm actually uh, curious because you, you said the the way that he talks and like and also the way that he deals with the press it's like it's 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 a very it's a very interesting dynamic that he has with the press because on the one hand he obviously needs the media because he he seeks media attention he always has uh, you know before he became president but at the same time he is very dismissive of the media most of it anyways. Um, you know, calling calling the uh, most of the uh, mainstream uh, reporting fake news. What, what do you what do you make of that? That uh, it, it seems such a it, it seems like a very codependent relationship between Trump and the media. And um, so, what what um, is this? Is this just going to continue being like this, or do you see it sort of evolving in a different direction going forward? Well, I think it's it's very interesting because obviously Trump came into office on the back of his success as a reality TV star. And um, as we know very well, um, he is hugely addicted to watching TV and he's completely obsessed with ratings. So in that sense, uh, mainstream media coverage is hugely important to him. And yet um, he has also 
shown himself to be very thin-skinned in relation to attacks from the media. Um, and therefore, um, he's um, initiated his own campaign against the mainstream media, which is a campaign that's run on several different fronts. Um, and uh, one is that um, he points to mainstream media as being the source of what he calls fake news. He's appropriated this term fake news as a way of talking about media, particularly media organizations that attack him. And so in that sense, he's seeking to undermine freedom of the press, seeking to undermine the ability of news media to hold him to account. And then secondly, he's also trying to bypass conventional media through his very elaborate, extensive um, use of Twitter right. as a way of appealing to his to his core uh, core constituents. I mean, how, how do you read this as a as a, a scholar of politics? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very interesting. I find it uh, sometimes uh, almost a little bit confusing, right? Because as you say, like he's. Uh, on the one hand, uh, making quite a bit of, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's probably an understatement, quite a bit of use of, uh, of Twitter, uh, but at the same time, he still sits down, like, uh, you know, on a regular basis with, um, with, uh, with what he would call sort of the mainstream media or the fake news, or, you know, I mean, there was uh, the, the other day, just, what was this, a couple of weeks ago, like this impromptu uh, interview that he did um, with uh, a New York Times reporter who was completely unprepared I think this was uh, maybe it was at his golf club in Florida, and he just kind of winged it, you know. And um, and then, of course, you know, after these interviews, then he complains that like his, uh, you know, his his, uh, you know, he's being misrepresented, and and he's attacking the media again. But it's just it's just a very bizarre uh, bizarre relationship. Um, I, uh, I I do think it is quite interesting. Um, you alluded to this earlier that. You know how how he's trying to um, at, at, at uh, you know, many on many occasions just kind of trying to sidestep um, the uh, the media and speaking directly to his base and so this is where where Twitter has come in very handily for for him and it seems to be um, you know it seems to be quite effective I mean we might not like what he says on Twitter but like he he seems to at least be getting through to. Uh, his his base, however small it is in the grander scheme of things, but like they they seem to like what he's uh, he's he's doing on Twitter. So, um, um, in terms of, of again speaking to his base, he he was obviously elected on the back of a series of promises of policy reform, yeah. things like building the wall, uh, repealing Obamacare, and carrying out extensive tax reform, and in some of these areas. Um, particularly with the repeal of Obamacare and the building of the wall, he's been fairly unsuccessful so far. Um, whereas in terms of thinking about something like tax reform, he actually did manage to get through some of those uh, changes that he's proposed. So how do you explain these kinds of failures and successes that he's had in terms of his policy agenda? I mean, I, I would say that like all in all, you know, there have been uh, many, many more failures than there have been successes. I think the signature accomplishment of his uh, presidency thus far is, is the, um, you know, is, is the, are the, the tax cuts that, uh, that uh, Congress passed and he signed. Um, uh, on, on most, uh, in most other areas, he's been... Uh, trying very hard to, it, it's almost mostly a, a, a program of repealing 
policies, rolling back policies that the Obama administration uh, have put in place over, over their eight years. And, um, you know, in, in, in some cases he has been uh, somewhat successful, but for most part it's been quite difficult. And one of, you know, what was supposed to be one of his signature accomplishments, I mean, that, that was, you know, one of the first things that he put on his uh, legislative agenda was the repeal of Obamacare. He, he, uh, he, uh, he failed. Um, and uh, you might have heard that, you know, recently after the, the tax reform uh, was passed that he sort of uh, said that as part of the reform there were, were some, um, there were some changes done that, that have affected the Affordable Care Act. And he kind of paints it as if this is basically the repeal of Obamacare. But of course Obamacare is still in place uh, uh, and, and people are still signing, you know, we're still signing up for it. Um, so it's, uh, I think for most part, uh, it's not been a very successful agenda, but um, he did have a, a little bit of a boost uh, as a result of passing that tax tax reform bill. And just, just uh, in light of what you were saying earlier regarding on, this, on the one hand the fact that Trump liked to think of himself as the deal maker, but on the other hand actually his sort of uh, relative lack of diplomacy and his uh, concentrated opinion has made it more challenging for him. I mean, do you think that his style of negotiation has been a factor in this, or do you think that um, that it would have been a similar picture if, let's say, um, you'd, you'd had a more moderate candidate? No, well, I mean, I think he has just a, a very, uh, very unique style, um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we, we saw this, uh, as I said earlier, as part of the um, uh, the government shutdown and the negotiations to trying to prevent the shutdown, um, where he basically he had invited uh, you know uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, the the top Democrat in the in the Senate, uh, over to the White House to basically negotiate a deal with him. And uh, by all accounts, it looked like when when uh, Schumer left the the White House that he felt they had cut a deal. And then only you know hours later, it turned out that he completely walked back on it. Uh, uh, that Trump walked back on it, and so I think you know the for all his boasting about uh, you know being like a deal maker, uh, he has been uh, incredibly ineffective. And like I said, I mean with the with the government shutdown, I mean the the negotiations to sort of reopen the government. That basically everybody's saying just you know for for Trump to just sort of stay out of this, right? And um, you know, he did the part of the problem too is right. I mean, I saw like a, a very interesting quote today in the in the New York Times. Uh, they they have their briefings uh, by by a former campaign advisor uh, uh, to President Trump. And the quote, I'm just going to read it here because it's just very, I thought it was very interesting. It says the misconception is that the president does not know what he does not know. In my experience, the reality is that the president knows what he does not know and does not think he needs to know it. Um, <laughs> And uh, that, that was Sam Nunberg, a former campaign advisor. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, that it kind of sums up uh, quite nicely what's going on. I mean, we had John Kelly, his chief of staff, come out, uh, you know, go to Congress and basically say, well, you know, Trump doesn't really know what he's talking about when he's talking about the, 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 the wall, right, uh, the border wall. Um, of course, then Trump was quite angry and, uh, you know, admonished his uh, chief of staff for saying that he didn't know what he was talking about. But basically, he just is, is deliberately quite ignorant about a lot of things. And I think that's making it very difficult 
to uh, get them to commit anything and to really, um, you know, develop uh, concrete legislative proposals that then can be passed into law. I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting observation as well because it points to the way that, you know, on the one hand, Trump's uh, kind of pleas of ignorance in a way, that is part of his populist appeal. The fact that he is plain speaking, he is not a, a kind of aloof intellectual like Barack Obama was. Um, so he's, he's plain speaking, he addresses policy issues in a language um, that's very accessible to the voters that he's trying to appeal to. On the other hand, even though this ignorance might be performance to some extent, it's also related to the fact that he might actually have a very limited attention span in terms of the details of, of policy proposals. Well, I mean, I mean, that's and that's basically what I mean. There's there's this uh, um, fire and fury, the new the book that by Michael Wolff that just uh, that was just published and has gotten so much attention, right? And I mean, the claim in, in you know, that Michael Wolff makes is that basically everybody in the White House, everybody in the administration knows that he has a uh, limited attention span, and um, it's 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 really not a secret, and they're just trying to work around it as best as they can, uh, but but apparently it's it's quite difficult um, to to keep his attention, and uh, he's also you know changes his mind quite a bit depending on on who he talked to last. Right? Uh, you know what I was I was interested in like sort of from you know uh, from from a, uh, the perspective of a journalism professor and a former journalist, like what. Um, you know the the way that like uh, press conferences or the press briefings, the daily press briefings are being done uh, in in this administration. It's like, uh, what what what's your take on it? Like, I mean, it's just it seems quite quite challenging for the uh, the the journalists that are sitting in the the White House press uh, briefing room, uh, trying to get any kind of information out of uh, out of the the White House press secretary. <laughs> well, I mean, that's right. You know, from Sean Spicer. Uh, coming up with alternative facts and hiding in the bushes yeah. um, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders sort of very bravely going up there every day to talk about, to try and spin um, or even deny uh, some of the statements that Trump has made. To me, these uh, briefings really dramatize this kind of very central tension between Trump as this very unpredictable um, and you know, to be honest, um, very frequently untruthful uh, media performer, and then and then the press, and also the the quite open hostility between the Trump administration and the press. So they dramatize this very very difficult relationship, where on the one hand, uh, the White House obviously needs to have some channel of communication with the media. But um, on the other hand, it's actually incredibly difficult to uh, present in any meaningful way a sensible interpretation of whatever the quite know what's going to happen next. And his press secretaries are in this unenviable position of kind of constantly having to second guess, uh, you know, and, and spin and interpret what, whatever it is uh, Trump's been saying and doing. I want to pick up on the scary part because uh, I'm I'm wondering. I mean, like I find myself oftentimes, uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, like find myself glued to uh, 
to the you know television set like we're watching watching these press briefings because I mean they are they're you know it's just they're very unpredictable. Um, but um, you know to what extent um, is uh, are are we already on a path where where um, we really have to worry about it um, you know. Uh, Taking on this uh, this this notion of like being quite undemocratic, like the too much too much lying. I mean, spinning is one thing. All press secretaries of all administrations have done this ever since there has been sort of pre have been press briefings, right? They spin things in their favor, right? But as you said, I mean, a lot of these uh, statements are just simply untrue. Mm. Uh, whether it is from the early days when Sean Spicer claimed it was the biggest inauguration crowd that has ever uh, been at a, a presidential inauguration, to to more recent examples, uh, have we already crossed like a, a, a line here? Um, what's uh, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because in the one sense, there's a danger that these Texts which are quite consistent with democratic institutions that serves to normalize a new approach to the presidency um, insofar as it appears to be acceptable for a president in public to attack the media and attack basic uh, human rights to be quite openly xenophobic and misogynistic um, among, among other things. On the other hand, um, and I think this is quite a, quite a helpful uh, way to think about it. Um, um, I think it was Jelani um, Cobb writing in the New York about this, mm. talked about Trump's presidency as being ahistorical and anti-historical, in the sense that we, are, we might in the future look at Trump's presidency as a kind of blip, mm. an anomaly. And it is an anomaly that comes out of a set of... Um, historical trends in terms of uh, economic, political, social and economic conditions but nonetheless um, I uh, would hope that um, it is a particular crazy historical moment uh, rather than being something um, new and, and normalized right. in a sense but it might nonetheless shift um, uh, kind of our understanding of politics and what what is acceptable for a politician to talk about in the kind of emotional register as well the way in which he talks in this very angry um, and very emotionally unhinged way yeah. that might shift our um, understanding I mean, and I mean related to that I, I, I sort of wanted to ask you um, um, a final set of questions before getting on to a couple of questions that we have from the audience yeah. as well which which has to do with, um, you know, speaking of Trump as this kind of unhinged character, um, we, um, we've seen how he's been quite keen to become involved in what we might call culture wars, mm -hmm. uh, specifically um, after what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. So he, he seems to be quite keen to kind of intervene with his own um, uh, quite dramatic statements. And how, how do you explain that and what kind of impact do you, do you think that might have? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's quite interesting because uh, I mean, there are actually um, you know, uh, there's some journalists that have, have uh, said that um, uh, you know, if it, basically that you know that these this this sort of uh, very rightist uh, you know uh, element um, 
in in the American population that they've sort of like you know ra have rallied behind Trump and have sort of become his core base. Um, if if that had played out differently, and if the, his base had been you know all the way to the left, that he would probably pander to them, right? So he's like, I mean, some some would say that like he is he's just an enormously opportunistic person. He craves the attention and the praise, and uh, it turns out that the uh, uh, that the part of the population that is uh, you know most satisfied with him and that is praising him the most is this uh, this sort of this this uh, this quite uh, extreme uh, rightist uh, element in, in the American population, um, and so so you know some people would say that like he doesn't really necessarily hold these views. Now the alternative you know uh, view is of course that if you go back to his his time when he was uh, when he was a, a, still a real estate uh, developer and then when he was a reality TV star TV star that there were Lots of uh, you know uh, situations where it came through that that he you know had racist views. I mean, there apparently uh, there there's sort of uh, recordings from the the time uh, uh, you know that the Apprentice was on TV, like uh, you know like off camera recordings that like um, apparently are are just absolutely horrific. I mean, they haven't nobody has made them public because apparently there's lots of non-disclosure agreements. But uh, but there there were claims that like he has he made a lot of racist comments. Now, if you think about like his real estate development deals, um, you know he there he he has been sued in the past for for discriminating against African American tenants. So uh, it's uh, you, you know I it, it's. Uh, it, it's going to be very interesting to see, like how how this is going to play out, like whether whether he's going to, you know, I think whether he's going to pivot at some point. You know, some people have expected and thought that, like at some point, he will become more presidential, or he will become more mainstream. Uh, it's it, it's not entirely clear at the moment. It certainly doesn't look that way. Uh, it looks like he seems to be doubling down quite a bit on uh, on on being being you know very extreme, very very much to the far right, very tough on immigration, and you know obviously his recent comments uh, with regard to uh, the types of countries that he would like to see uh, you know uh, immigration from is uh, you know have have been have been quite outrageous and and I think rightly so uh, uh, characterized it as uh, as racist. Now, so uh, relating to uh, those comments that you just made regarding, you know, in terms of, of trying to look into the future, um, we've actually just had a couple of questions in from um, the audience, which I think are a very nice way to kind of close our discussion because they exactly um, raise these issues around where are we going um, and what is going to happen to the Trump uh, presidency. Um, and and um, I think the two questions are actually quite closely related. So I just uh, let me just read out uh, both of them. Uh, the first one is that Lichtman predicted yesterday that Trump will be impeached due to Mueller's Russia probe. Do you see this as likely? And the second question, I think closely related again, will Trump survive the next elections? Can he win a second term? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think you know the the second question hinges on how you answer the the first yeah, question exactly. clearly, right? <laughs> um, 
So, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 the Mueller investigation is, is, is quite interesting. And, um, you know, we've, uh, it, you know, at the end of, uh, of the last uh, year, um, you know, the Trump administration was quite, uh, you know, was, was quite aggressive in, in uh, promoting the view that the, uh, um, the Mueller probe was going to be over very soon, right? Um, that um, they had been contacted by Mueller, that uh, you know, Mueller wanted to interview uh, Trump, and they sort of took this as a sign that this, things were winding down. You know, you go, the, the, you know, the, the interviewing the president, like that surely would be sort of the, the final uh, part of this, uh, this investigation. Um, and so they, they actually predicted uh, that it would be, be done before the end of the year. Now, of course, you know, the Mueller investigation seems to be still in full force. Um, uh, you know, uh, there was, uh, you know, they, uh, the Mueller um, uh, team is, is now trying, uh, you know, is, is going to interview uh, Steve Bannon, the former chief strategist of the, the Trump uh, administration and former campaign chairman of the Trump campaign. Um, there's been a lot of uh, uh, coverage uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, the probe uh, paying uh, particularly close attention as of late to uh, the questions of money laundering and how the Trump organization might have been involved in money laundering and how this, this uh, uh, particularly involved uh, Russian investors. So I, I think um, I think there's still a lot more to come, and um, I, I think it is it is quite a um, it, it's quite a threat to the Trump presidency, which is why I think you've you've seen uh, uh, both the Trump administration as well as the Republicans in Congress, or at least some Republicans in Congress, uh, go after Mueller uh, quite viciously. Um, I think they, they are trying to lay the groundwork for shutting down that investigation eventually. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I think, I think uh, if, if uh, there was an attempt to shut down the Mueller investigation by whichever way they would try to do this, I think it would, would trigger a, a very serious constitutional crisis in the United States. Um, uh, but, um, you know, in some respects, um, shutting down the Mueller investigation might be the only way for Trump to even get close to the point of trying to seek a second term. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, uh, I, think, I think he knows that. So, so it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see what, what happens, sort of, especially in these first six months of this year, um, because I, I think, uh, you know, there there, there will probably be, be some very significant developments as part of the investigation, and it would be interesting to see how the Trump administration will react to that. And I was just going to say also, if we look towards the second part of the year, we've got the midterm elections right. coming up. And, and obviously, um, one of the key things that's really preventing very effective opposition to Trump at, at the moment is the Republican majority uh, in both houses of Congress. But what's uh, potentially might happen is that the Democrats are going to win a majority in one or both and in that case it's actually possible that they're going to be able to offer much more robust opposition both to Trump's policy agenda but also potentially with an eye to uh, actually impeaching Trump. So in that sense I think, I think what we've identified are um, a series of different potential points 
where Trump might get into serious trouble if indeed he doesn't uh, resign his job uh, in the meantime. Now, um, well, of course, like you know, like people are saying that uh, you know that there has that another part of the the Michael Wolff book uh, was that basically when um, he was reporting that uh, when Trump won uh, won the election on on election night, like. Uh, he, he seemed surprised, and uh, Melania seemed uh, sad, and uh, nobody really expected. And he doesn't really want the job. I don't know that that's uh, that's true. I think he 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 likes uh, the power that comes with it. He he's gotten like a real taste for it. And even though he might not be interested at all in sort of the um, the policy aspects and all the you know the the the, the things that come uh, with being a president. I, I think the one thing that he does like is the power, and so he, he will probably try to hang on to it as, as, as long as he can. Well, I think that's a really uh, nice uh, point to uh, end on there. Um, so thank you very much, René. Yeah, thank you.